You're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we got the infamous string dusters, or two of the dusters. The infamous of the infamous, if you will. Perhaps. Well, we had to dust this one off because, you know, we've, we've been sitting on this one for a couple weeks, folks. Uh, very nice chat. Um, I think it's important to note that these guys came around as a, as a bluegrass band initially. Actually, a award-winning bluegrass band right out of the gate. And um, they switched and morphed more into the jam world after playing with uh, Railroad Earth and seeing the opportunity there and seeing the, just the wonderful crowd responses and so forth. So that's just something to carry into the uh, interview in the back of your head. Yeah, lots of knowledge here. But here's something that's really interesting about this interview uh, that will be apparent when you listen to our interview with... Anders Beck from Green Sky Bluegrass. There's a lot of uh, connections uh, through different people, and and when you go way back to, you know, 20 years ago in Colorado, 15 years ago, even. Um, I'm not going to give that all up now, but this but a is, lot of the musicians came out of the same circles that are in the big, big, huge bands now. Yes, yes, and and they all have a different story. They all have the same story, but their own uh, version of it, and, it, and it's kind of neat. And I think Rob, maybe one day we'll pull together these stories and make an, an episode just on that. And it's a fine example of, uh, you know, it's very cool how they all share all the songwriting credits. Everything's written by the band. But it's kind of a pain in the ass from my perspective without liner notes, without a publicist. I had to go through and really, like, pick songs and then go and listen, find videos of them and see who was singing them. And then so uh, kind of threw together the music that way, had a different open. And then what happened, Seth? Well, they announced the uh, Grammy nominees for this year. And if String Duster's uh, album is... Is one has gotten a Grammy nomination, so we chose Gravity, which is sort of the semi-title track of this Laws of Gravity wonderful, wonderful CD that I got to know inside out when researching for this. Oh, did you inside out? That's good. I like the way you did that, Rob. So congratulations to you guys for that. All the other music is from the Variety Playhouse. It's available at livedownloads.com. Um, Brad Serling, who um, his he also is in charge of Nugs.net TV, and he has kindly given me the... Uh, the past, the unlimited devotion past. I've been watching the Dead and Company and putting reviews. Um, the webcast reviews will be on showtheshow.com, although I'm going to do the last two just for our website, insideoutwtns.com, which is going to have more and more stuff. Yeah, we've got a section on there now. It's Rob's section. It's going to be his uh, links to all of his um, reviews that are either up on our site or other sites. He just has one from the Atlanta uh, yep. uh, the Atlanta Dead and Company show, which let's, uh, which is now on jambase.com. Jambands.com. Because I attended that me. one. It's not a webcast review. I put the ones on showtheshow.com that are webcast reviews because that's a site toward the webcast viewer. Gotcha. And Rob, why don't we end the outro, talk a little bit about that Dead & Company show, because I actually, uh, I, I was exposed to it for the first, I, I haven't seen them before, and I'd like to, you know, sure. about Sure, but the bottom line, I'm back to writing, I'll do webcast reviews, all this other sort of stuff. Um, give us, uh, email us at insideoutwtns at gmail.com if you would like your Rob's webcast for review. hire. Or not even for hire. If you just put our logo, uh, you know, if, if you put a logo to this and the Thomas Music Podcast with it, and if you, I don't know, the last two, it's taken like 48 hours each to get them up. I, I really, once it's written, I, I don't like I don't like websites dragging ass. Get the, get the stuff up. Keep it fresh. 
It's not. It becomes no longer news. Arr, so frustrating when you bust ass working on one of these, and you got to wait two days for them to post it. Yeah. Well, speaking of busting ass, big thanks to Josh Thane, our engineer, who's producing, not producing, putting together this show. Welcome back, Josh. It's good to have you back. And Nathaniel, good job, Nathaniel. On uh, uh, he's one of our interns that um, Nathaniel Roberts. He put together the last uh, episode and did a fine job on that so good job there and of course harris harris sullivan sully Sully. Sully. he's really stepped up and keeping up our website and our marketing and really helping us move inside out wtns uh keeping keeping us afloat man and throwing us new ideas and stuff like that and he's gonna help me with the writing we're gonna try to get the the florida review up really quickly on our website florida review the florida will be the last two shows of the dead and company tour so Enough oh, about them. Florida. Oh. We'll talk more about them in the outro. What what, what else did you have? Uh, T-Dogs. I had one more thanks, though, if that's okay. Yes. Can I give one more thanks? Please do. All right. I would like to thank you, our listeners, who are bringing our show listens to over 55,000 listens. That's a milestone here for Inside Out, and we want to thank you for listening. We saw a big spike on our uh, in the, with the Brock episode the other week and a lot of people sharing it, so thank you guys for your support. Pretty steady, 500-plus listens a week, whether or not we release now. If we release, it's closer to 1,000. That's great. Very gratifying. We appreciate you listening. You're obviously spreading it. You're being active listeners. Passive listeners are for terrestrial radio. If you have a podcast that you like, whether it's this one or any other, make it known. Shout it from the social media mountaintops. Review it on iTunes. Tell a friend uh, whatever you can do, even if it's just a like or a retweet on Twitter. Do it. Hey, speaking speaking of likes... Yes. I like something, and we're going to get into the interview in a second, but I want to tell you what I like. I like that the end of the year is coming, and I've got Pole and Clark as my accounting firm to help us get through that tax season. And this tax, I mean, let's not even go into the government tax stuff, because that's just crazy right now. But uh, if you haven't heard of Pole Clark, check them out, poleclark.com. Uh, there's a button on there. You can get a free consultation, but they're definitely the best in the industry, especially when it comes to boutique businesses and music businesses and athletes a lot of athletes and the laws are changing people you want an expert and they have the finest accountants on staff so again that's uh poleclark.com and um they use us they got me i used to be on quickbooks rob i don't know it's probably to make any sense to you but (laughs) i used to be on quickbooks but now i'm on zero and it is a game changer you are on zero, aren't you? Oh my God! <laughs> hey, uh, we're not zero days away. We are, you know, Christmas spirits here. Ho, ho, ho! And um, T Dog has his holiday hoot nanny coming up. We talked briefly about it. We are a media sponsor, and we want to let you guys know uh, the schedule was released. This is coming up. Um, what the date is? Uh, December twentieth. So we're really on the countdown now, as we are in December. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go to that, and then I'm gonna crash at the undisclosed location and drive to Florida for my holiday. That literally the next day, I'm staying in town an, an extra couple of days because of this hoot nanny. Because I'm looking forward to it that much. That's awesome. Well, do you have the schedule? Or you want me to tell the schedule? Well, you have the uh, doors open, and the silent auction uh, starts real early at six p.m. But the cap- silent auction doesn't end till eleven fifteen, right? right? You yeah. have all night to to uh, vote on the au- vote. But it's not voted bid. What's the bid? That's come the on, word. come on. I'm, you're the auction yeah, guy. It's true. It's true. Uh, Jim, they have Ralph Roddenberry getting an hour set, and then Jim Lauderdale set starting at eight fifteen. I guess he'll put together whoever. I, I doubt he'll play solo. He's listed as solo. Y- yeah, he's it's going to be the smorgasbord, but he's taking the helm from eight fifteen to nine fifteen. And, and this then is you basically ter- got zombie, zombie acoustic, zombie, zombie. <laughs> oh gosh, mm, zombie. <laughs> <laughs> Colonel Bruce comes back and rides. It's zombie. That's right. 
I'm going to Wani for the zombie. For the zombie. With Wani. So, yeah, and that's going to be 11.15 till yeah, about 12.30 a.m. And that's uh, featuring Jeff Mosher, Count Mbutu. By the way, Count Mbutu's back. We need to get him on the show. I love Count. He is a hysterical guy to ta- chat with. And Johnny Knapp and the Madrid, Madrid Express. Johnny Knapp and Taylor ne- t- uh, Tyler, t- Tyler Neal. Tyler Neal, yeah. Tyler Neal. I'm uh, expecting to sit down with him for the Thomas Music Podcast. Really? To begin my kernel project uh, very soon. Maybe before, maybe before this Christmas jam. Which now, do you know who we're sitting down with? Larry Keel? I uh, don't know exactly yet. We're, we still have to finalize it, but it will definitely be, uh, yeah, the folks. That it'll, it'll be people that are performing. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> we're, we, we sat down with uh, Andy Falco and uh, Chris Pandolfi of the infamous String Dusters. Uh, they're about to go, on, they're constantly on tour, really. TheStringDusters.com, if you want to check out where they're going to be. But um, they're coming back to Georgia. They're playing. Uh, I don't have the date in front of me, but they're pl- they're coming back, Seth. They're playing at uh, the Georgia Theater. Yeah, but I'll see him before that, Robbie. So I'm going to go join them at Strings and Soul. And by the way, oh, many of you probably are on your way right now to Strings and Soul, listening to this because hopefully got plugged properly. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know they're book they're booked for Georgia Theater, but I don't see it on their website, thestringdusters dot com. But uh, oh yeah, there it is, January seventeenth at the Georgia Theater. All you Georgia listeners, uh, we also have a lot of listeners in North Carolina. They're playing that Haw River Ballroom in Saxophon, North Carolina. This is a really cool place, Seth. I need to go there one time. It's in the middle of nowhere, and I hear it's just the styling little venue. And one more date. Let me Hickory, North Carolina. They're playing music in the mill. What is that with Danger well, Something with and what's the revelry room in Chattanooga? They must. You can tell these guys have a good booking agent. They're finding the cool little nooks and venue nooks and crannies. Hey, speaking of nooks, I thought you said nugs. You did mention nugs. Uh, you talked about the live downloads. These guys are also uh, one of the several bands that you can access music through nugs.net. Right, that's live downloads. That's the same thing. Right? I know. It's just a so that's commenting the, on that. Rob. The show is the Variety Playhouse show from this fall, somewhere in September. Was it September? I feel like it was. I feel it like it was yesterday. Even October. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know, but it's the most recent Atlanta one, uh, fall of 2017. And you hear um, Highwaymen. You'll hear uh, pieces of Highwaymen, pieces of Peace of Mind, which I get the impression that Mr. Falco wrote. Um, or at least prior, primarily, they, they they all collaborate to f- finish these songs. Yes, but. yeah. They, well, there's a just listen to the interview. They go through it, and the interview. This one's a little different too because we start off with the both gentlemen, and then one had to uh, peel away to go for a sound check, and so yeah, we start off with both Chris and. Andy and then Chris had to leave and we talked to Andy who came up through Wetlands through that whole New York yeah. so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um the other song was called uh, it's the one about the 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 Odyssey about about traversing we talk about in the interview. Uh, well there's Siren and then there was uh what was the no, other we one? didn't get to si- Siren oh, uh, Black Elk? No, but we did, so we did we do discuss that. No, it's 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 one about traversing a canyon. A oh, canyon hey. Odyssey, I think it's called. How about the listeners listen to the interview and they can just hear it and you don't have to describe it. Uh, because I'm giving the titles of the songs so they can purchase a song if they like. Oh, that's a good idea, Rob. Oh, hey. Step ahead he wants to Oh, my God. Here they are. Without further ado. Chris and Andy from Infamous Stream. That says, I love this band. We're going to sit down with them. If I had a black wood, I'd fashion myself something good. Guitar or a fishing pole or something that would knock it over If I had a block of wood And if I had a bowl of twine I'd make my silver gold decline 
And then tie you to the highest tree And look how far as I could see If I had a mold of time If I could leave one thing behind A story for peace of mind A peace of mind All right, Atlanta, Georgia Write it now, now think twice Then living in an open book And hope someday to take a look Let them know I did my best Before they lay me down to rest I could leave one thing behind A story for peace of mind Peace of We are backstage at Variety Playhouse with two members of infamous string dusters, Mr. Andy Falco and the author of the Bluegrass Manifesto, Chris Pandolfi. Nice. Welcome. <laughs> Thank Welcome, you. Guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So you Thank- have a new CD out, Laws of Gravity, which I find Hold inter- on. CD or album? Record. What do you call it these days? Record, because it's really got- a record of where you're at and vinyl's back. So and, and, it's, and it's a sound recording, so it's a record. Okay. There you go. But it's interesting that you did an album with women ladies and gentlemen and we'll get into that um women singing the vocal and then your next one uh references being down to earth is there any any relation there (laughs) i think in a way maybe like for us you know doing laws of gravity was kind of coming back to our thing in a way you know ladies and gentlemen obviously was a departure the first real collaborations album that we had had done and you know you got to mix it up along the way when you are in a swing of releasing many albums and have many years of many albums to come, you know, you got to think of some different things to do. And so ladies and gentlemen was a perfect opportunity for that. And then, you know, just as it always does, the pendulum sort of swings back the other way. And after we did our most collaborative album, I think we came back and did what some of us consider sort of our most authentic to us album yet you know all original songs no guests recorded very live with sort of our um, co-producer engineer who we're really getting in the swing of things with billy hume and so that was kind of like how those two things fit together and you know now we're looking on to the next one and that's going to be something different in some way it's going to be boys and girls start with ladies and gentlemen go to boys and girls god the cat's out of the bag (laughs) but there are three things about your process that i think are kind of related that um you often don't road test the material you guys collaborate on the originals very closely and you like to rent a house and live together when you're recording is this all correct well it's when we're like doing the pre-production stage that's how we because we all live scattered around the country so we have to when we want to work on music and really dive deep into it we'll get into a house together for a few days at a time do a lot of show and tell of songs and that's really where the initial introduction to the music and you end up with maybe you know 30 some odd songs but you know what starts to happen is some of them start to sort of people start saying hey what's that one we did the other day and what's what's that one and you start to piece together what you know eventually shapes into what the album will be and, and i think i think too in relation to what you're saying it's interesting like you reference you know not road testing them and that was a hard concept to 
finally sort of hit our stride with because you know when you're a band and you're touring and 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 you're still kind of coming up through the ranks things are a little bit more informal you learn a new song you want to go play it live you know but where we're at now i think we sort of realized the silver lining of that was if you hold the songs and wait kind of until the album comes out um all of a sudden your show gets this infusion infusion of energy and ideas and you know again i think like one of the successes of laws of gravity the best evidence is the fact that those songs have become sort of the best songs in our show and so now that we've had a taste of that you know i think laws of gravity was the really the for me the the advent of this concept really taking on some real meaning for the dusters you know i i look forward to that you know that new album not just because we have a new album out but because of the effect that it has on the show because shows are what we primarily do mm-hmm. now how many songs do you guys have that that you're just having the can that you haven't put on yeah because you go album. in with more songs than you record there, like there's twice a lot. as many don't you there's a lot really i mean you know but sometimes you know i mean i feel myself as a writer that sometimes you you might write five or six songs and throw them to the wall and see what sticks, but maybe like a couple of those really aren't that good, you know, from coming from me. And, you know, so you try them out and you're like, eh, it didn't really kind of work out the way I wanted to. But then, you know, you know, some songwriters, they talk about like you got to run the water, you know, run the water and get the brown water out. And, yeah. and, and, and then, you know, the faucet starts, sure. you know, and I think that's, that's a lot of the way with, with songs for me anyway. I just feel like, Sometimes you think something's going to work a certain way, and when you really kind of hear it, you know how you think about something sometimes in your head, and then when you say it out loud, you're like, wait, no, that... that well, normally when you do, do that, my wife tells me to shut the fuck up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, you know, but... So sometimes, you know, I, some of the songs just... They, they just maybe kind of just disappear, maybe. And, and then sometimes, you know, there are other songs that we have that end up on the live show that don't end up being recorded, but mm-hmm. maybe they end up on a, on a live record or, or yeah, something when, like that. When you record something, too, you know, there's you don't hear people talk about it a lot, but there's a lot of aspects of being in a band that sort of open all these doors that are bigger than just being a musician or a songwriter. Like, for example, when we go into record, there actually aren't a lot of songs that we went in and tracked for Laws of Gravity that didn't make the album. And I think that's because when we get to that phase where we're ready to hit record, a lot of that fleshing out has already happened because we collaborate so much on the writing of the songs and then also when we go to hit record we're capturing not just the song but that collective experience that we have of playing together for all these years and so there's this other thing that is in a way i guess bigger than the song or you know part of the song of course it makes the song ultimately but it's the sound of the band and these live moments that are generated when we're playing together that have you know that they're part of the draw too you know so you're capturing all these other things when you go to record when you're actually in a band that has all this collective experience so when we actually got down to it and tracked you know there weren't a lot of songs that we recorded that you know didn't make the album i don't think there were any i don't think there were any i think we recorded every song we recorded for for laws of gravity Ended up on the album, and there was a discussion for for a minute. Well, maybe we'll we'll pick the the best nine, and and you know, but we kind of came down to talking about it, and we just we we liked them all, and you know, it was to to take anything off didn't make any sense to us, and so we just put them all on there. Yeah. 
Now, one, and we can get into the decision-making process behind it later on, but one thing unique about you guys is that you, well, I don't mind unique, but not every band does this. You share songwriting credits, which is very noble, but from my perspective, I don't really know who wrote each one. So, for example, Gravity. Who, who, which one wrote Gravity? Travis did, and you can usually tell by who sings lead. Sure. You well, know, who, usually the person who sings lead, except for a few rare occurrences, is the one who write, wrote the song. Now, Travis talks about writing retreats and how that one was one that, because I've heard him talk about it, but I didn't even know which, because in Spotify, you don't know who Yeah, what's who. the deal, by the way? That's a, a note here. Spotify, I thought it was great that they, that they included you in the series that they do where you guys talk a little bit about the, about the album. But there's doesn't say who's talking. This is why I ask publicists for hard copy of, of CDs, because you can find out who played on what and who sang what. You can also that. see but that Spotify, online. No, you can't, dude. Well, we'll have that on a sidebar. <laughs> No, that's that's a yeah. good point. I hadn't thought of that, but, um, <laughs> but writing retreats. Do you use those at all? Because yeah. I know Amanda Shires does we this. Do. And can you talk about that? And and maybe give an example of a song that was just you had disposed of, and then at a writing retreat, you you were inspired and it came back. Usually, they start out with um, you know everybody sort of taking what they consider to be their their best, most current songs, and showing them to the rest of the group. And then once we sort of have our top list established, we kind of go into phase two where we take those songs. And again, this, this relates back to what I was saying about sort of the, the twofold nature of recording, capturing not just the song, but the sound of the band. And we put them through this arranging process that really takes the songs and makes them a thing that is worthy of shared writing credits, a thing that reflects more than just this song and the time that it that took to write it but draws upon that shared experience that you have as a band and takes a song and really makes a sort of essentially string duster and um you know those arrangement ideas will change and morph but that's where we sort of go through that process of figuring out how can we take these five acoustic instruments and our voices and craft something really unique that serves this piece of songwriting um and and then yeah that's what that's what sort of adds that second layer of it's not just about the melody and the lyrics it's about the interpretation and the articulation of the music via the band and the individual time that we've all spent you know learning our instruments and then even more importantly that all that collective time that we figured out how to play with each other and you also have a keen sense of history right I, you know, that that's the funny thing about our band is everybody goes back and forth on what is bluegrass. I think we're a bluegrass band. I mean, if we're not a bluegrass band, who is a bluegrass band? You know, you got banjo and fiddle and, and, and three-part harmonies. But you got lights. But you got lights, but, you know, you don't have drums, and you could you could go back and forth all day on these things. But And it's it's ultimately, it's very semantic, but the truth of the band is that the common thread that we do have is bluegrass. And... Furthermore, everyone in the band, you know, has really, you know, you could spend a lifetime as a banjo player, for example, trying to emulate Earl Scruggs. And my influences are more eclectic than that. But man, I've spent a lot of time with Earl Scruggs, you know, just as Falco has spent a lot of time learning, you know, Tony Rice and Doc Watson. And the rudiments of bluegrass and those playing styles, to me, that's what that's what makes something bluegrass. It's are the playing styles derivative of that old school stuff? You know, you're always going to have new songs. You're always going to have new repertoire. But we play, essentially, our instruments, you know, in ways that are derivative of 
Earl Scruggs and, you know, Jerry Douglas and the, the second generation guys who have inspired us, you know, Bay of the Fleck, Tony Rice, Sam Bush, all these guys. Well, that leads to the question, you have bluegrass, you have new grass. What's the next grass? Well, I think, <laughs> you know, green. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It, I think that it's just it, it gets to a certain point with the genre of music where it just is music. You know, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, like rock and roll or something, you know, I mean, rock and roll is, a, you know, there's a, you know, there, there, there's a wide variety of what rock and roll can be described as you know i mean you can describe kiss or iron maiden or buddy holly and it's all so different you know but it all really is maybe steeped in a similar thing i think hopefully people can just listen to a band like the string dusters and just consider it bluegrass well and then that in that light though you guys have you guys are at the forefront of that i mean there's a lot of bands uh I'm going to say Green Sky Bluegrass is a band that's really pushing the envelope and, and breaking the genres. But you guys are one that, in a, in a way like Mumford & Sons, is able to reach the masses, right? You guys are starting to really pop into that. And a lot of help with Ryan Adams, I think, uh, opened up a lot of people's, exposed you to a lot more people outside of just the you know strings and soul type of crowd. Um, and you guys are really pushing that and pushing the envelope there and, and bringing with you this whole other group of musicians. So getting back, in, you're, when you're in the house and you have a song like 1901 Canon Odyssey, are you talking about this whole, can you explain what the Torrance, what that is, that's, that's about getting move, the move west, right? And they had to basically traverse to, to get there. Now, as a band, are you guys discussing that? And is that part of the interpretation of the song? Is that you guys... I, absolutely. I think that, you know, we do discuss when we show each other songs, there will be usually... if. If the people have questions I and mean, people are listening to lyrics and going, sometimes it's more obvious. You know, a song like 1901, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a story about something that actually happened in history. But, um, but yeah, there is like, oh, so what's the story here? And you explain, oh, well, I, you know, was in, um, I was at the Black Canyon and checking it out. And, and my girlfriend's father gave us a book that told the whole story. And that was in the book. And I just thought it was a really interesting story about these guys, especially having being being inspired by actually standing at the rim of this canyon and looking down at this incredible place and you know um but there's a story about the river and the and the uh, and and everything that happened in there and i think like the jam for example in that song it's like you know well this is the part where they're stuck in the narrow stuck in the yeah and they're <laughs> stuck they're going they dove into the rapids and they're being and that's kind of what we're maybe thinking about when we're doing that jam you know
the story has been told And while the river still runs cold The water gets to where it wants it never been Ask her whether they escaped They made it out just bruised and scraped The two men never would forget the gun of sun There's only one way the water flows Through a passage no one knows You have to be informed by the story of the song in order to be able to choose musically you know the vibe that you're trying to and the the backdrop for the lyric that you're trying to set so well that 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 leads us to black elk um i i read that story black elk speaks up when when i was in college uh coming from an anthropological background where did where did you guys pick up that story where uh, andy picked it up from the book andy hall read the book yeah no, so was it something? So has he got an anthropological background, or just and discover it, that? Book? And again, does it spawn conversation and inspiration when you're in the house? I'm fascinated by bands that live in the house when they're creating this stuff and what goes on in there beyond the music. And mm-hmm. then there's got to be some discussion about that as well. There yeah. definitely is. I mean, the 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 songs are you know transparent in a way because obviously the first thing we hear is is the lyrics you know and there's a and there's a story there and i think that 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 individual writer ties that back in this instance for example to the book black elk speaks but um you know definitely every song comes with a a little bit of sort of background information and then you hear that in the sound of the music and and the intensity of the playing and the chord voicings and things like that are all, I think, really designed. And some of this is done in a very conscious way, but I think also a lot of it is 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 more in the unconscious realms where you know we've just been playing these instruments for so many hours every day for so many years that there's an expression factor that we all have. And, you know, you hear those sounds come out in sort of that first version of the song, that, that live demo, and that just shapes how we play. And, and again, not all of it is really a conscious decision, but that's just what, again, what you get from years of playing individually and together. Those sounds sort of coalesce around that initial idea, not just of the content, but also of, of the instrumental vibe, and that's how things come to life. You have sort of an, an arrangement mill, I, I've heard you <laughs> refer to it as, correct? Where it, the song comes in and then each influence comes in and, and it takes shape. So on some level it's democratic, but there's got to be disagreements that come up. Ultimately, is it still the songwriter, the one who brings it in, who has the final say? If if something comes up, if there's a you know I think discrepancy. With us, it's really there's such trust among each other that, you know, if, if you have an idea and you know the the group will yeah sometimes your your ideas don't always you can throw an idea out there but if the group doesn't you can just know that i don't think we ever have a problem with like disagreements like that it's always just so you have a trust where you know and we're really you know we're really good at that i think as a band we're really good at at that sort of uh give and take and 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 trusting each other musically to be able to you know, have those those times where may, maybe you have an idea that you really like, but it, you know you try that you could tell when the band just isn't that into that idea, and you and you realize, oh, maybe that wasn't such a great idea. They, they grew up in the uh, Nancy Reagan generation, so they know how to just say no. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of message 
in your lyrics. Absolutely. And um, without being preachy, and that's a tough, tough line to walk. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, so, so with that said, though, a lot of message when you are going up and your approach to songwriting, are you do you have your fans in mind when you're when you're writing your songs, or are you just writing what you're feeling? I think we do have our fans and the show environment in mind when when we're writing songs and. Um, Particularly with Sirens, right? The instrumental. Sirens is definitely designed for the live live environment. Um, and some songs, I think, are more in that category than others. But, you know, with regard to the, the songs and the lyrical content, um, it's, it's, it's interesting how much has changed in the world in the time that we've been a band. In, you the, know? Last, in the last hour, the Juggalo March just started. Who knows where we're at now? <laughs> Um, and I think that you know there's a there's a like-mindedness, there's a power of authenticity, there's a um, you know an awareness of each other as a group and the way that we think that's much more present on people's minds now than there was even a few years ago, and so and it's not. Again, yeah, it's not a it's not a preachy thing. It's um, you know, and I think part of that is because it's just so obvious now. It's just so there, you know, what what's happening and how important it is, more important than ever for us to, you know, do what little we can to set an example of, you know, all the all the things that we stand for, you know, doing what you believe in, doing doing what you care about, you know, treating each other well. Um, just approaching the world in hopefully an honest and ethical way and trying to just do some good, you know. And I think that those those things are matter more and also subsequently are easier to conjure as a group. We don't have to sit down and try to figure out, hey, what are we thinking today? Where, where are our fans' heads at? You know, I think that it's a... It, it's kind of you know the silver lining of our just crazy political climate and what the world is going through and all these things is that that like-mindedness is growing and there is an awareness that we do need to you know be a, we're going to be a part of each other's lives for better or worse so let's make the most of that and try to set some kind of positive example um, and our fans are obviously all really on board with that and that that's you know one of the most amazing things about being in a band is seeing the community that forms around it and it's been a very easy and sort of seamless thing for us because we are those people and those people are us you know i mean we're we're not the child prodigy types you know i was a music fan before i was a professional musician so the connectivity in in that is real and we're just our fan base is such a great and pure and supportive group of people who i'm just you know i'm 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 proud of that i so think what that's you're an saying awesome thing is you are the festy <laughs> the festy <laughs> is me but you guys have a stated goal of having all six voices equally present do you ever get to some point in the recording process and say wow this person's not represented enough we gotta we gotta effort to step up that person's presence and the overall statement we're making this release or does it just I think happen that happens kind of naturally okay. I think it does and um, I think that's also part of one of the reasons why we do share all of our songwriting because it takes a lot of the pressure off of having to balance that out where we all feel 
you know, like we're writing these songs together ultimately and we're able to just kind of, you know, pick what we feel are the best songs or the best group of songs together in order to choose for a record. But I, I, but I would add also that, you know, from a writing standpoint, what, from what you were talking about before, I think, you know, it's important always as a writer to be authentic and to write what's real to you and what you're really feeling. I mean, I'm from Long Island, you know, nobody wants to hear me writing a song and singing about, you know, a little cabin on the hill in Kentucky, you know, because I, I wouldn't, that's not my, I, I'm not being authentic, you know, I think it's, it's really finding the things and yeah, current events, I think of what's happening in the world, we're affected by that. And I think it comes out in the music and where maybe sometimes people are afraid to, to, to to walk that line these days in the entertainment industry, I feel it's our responsibility as artists to be able to write exactly what we feel because I think, hey, listen, we're, our job, really, we're one of the few people who, that's what our job is, is to express ourselves authentically. And if we, if we avoid certain topics because we're afraid that it'll upset people, I think that goes against everything, you know, that being an artist is there's also you got to remember that the pressure is not you know we do make an album we make an album once every you know two years but we play a show a couple times a week and i think as far as the getting all the voices heard that ties a lot more into the set list than it does in you know the, the lineup of songs on an album again because we share writing it, you know you take the pressure off you know needing to get your song on the album and it becomes that more collaborative process but then when it comes to the set list that's a primary focus is making sure everybody gets their air time every night so you know we're lucky to have both of those outlets so now ladies and gentlemen real quick were you in the studio with with these women every every recording was Only it? a few of them because you know the nature of a project like that obviously poses a logistical um, challenge you know as far as being in the studio together but um, you know we were working closely and communicating closely with keys and song selections and stuff like that and there were a few um, Mary Chapin Carpenter we recorded with in the studio because we did it we recorded in Nashville and she also dropped the restraining order before the she was she dropped the restraining order before the yeah, right, session, so right of course that helped and uh, and uh, Jennifer Hartswick was was with us in the studio, and they you know cut that track live with us, which was her stuff. Um, but the others, you know, we had to you know send out the tracks and Sarah have them. Sarah Jarose. Sarah Jarose, I think yeah did it after. I mean I think those were the the only two I mentioned were the only two that were actually if I remember correctly mm -hmm. were, were now Nikki Bloom. Mm. Did you know Nikki Bloom before that recording? Yeah. Yeah, how long you guys have you... a history with her for a while now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, because Nikki's the key to Ryan Adams, right? Kinda, yeah. Uh, she she was working. She was she that. was working with Ryan, and he was asking her since she's connected in the acoustic world, you know, who should I check out? And that's how he connected with us. All right, take us to the first time you met him. What was that like? That was pretty hilarious, actually. We it was Telluride Bluegrass, and we had. You know, we were headlining the main stage, you know, at, on Saturday evening with Ryan. And we had never met him. And he has, you know, he has this Meniere's disease, mm -hmm. which he deals with sort of like vertigo type symptoms. And alti as well. altitude and all that. And so he, he was late coming in. And then it was like the day of the show. And you hadn't rehearsed we had or never anything. played never with him at all. Wow. And you could tell, I think you could tell he 
you know, when he first rolled in, there was, and it, we were sort of on notice that it could be a lot of things. You know, we could play a couple songs with him, or maybe we would do most of the set, or, you know. And it wasn't announced that we were going to be there. It was just billed as a Ryan Adams solo. Right, right. Oh, oh, really? So yeah. that first one in Telluride, it wasn't, people didn't know that he was going to, in fact, I heard that the last time he was billed as Ryan Adams at Telluride Bluegrass Festival, as he was billed solo, Ryan Adams, he showed up with like a punk rock band. <laughs> so yeah. I think in a way, he purposefully was keeping it just, you know, a secret because he, you know. That's, that's but, great. Um, but it was a great, <clears throat> it was a great moment where, you know, we've been down this road and played with many artists and know how to. You know, we had done our homework and we were ready to go. And the whole set's in the key E, Mary. <laughs> no, but you had been given a list of songs we, from which you would draw from. Given right. a big list of songs, and you know, we're you know we're ready with basically all those songs. And he came in, and you could tell it was it was an audition at first. And we played those first couple songs, and it was just totally on. And we played the whole set with him, and then have played a handful more shows after with him. And um, there was a great synergy there and you know his songs are just so legendary they you know they're they're not it's easy to play a great song you know sure but is it easy to know what tempo is it easy to know what to emphasize it seems like there's subtlety that that with an artist like that though i would say it's like you know you really you know we're we're a band of multiple people with an artist like that you know it's the 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 song informs everything and if you just kind of you know, listen to what he's doing, and you, you, and we're, you know, uh, we play together all the time, so we know each other's ins and outs, and so there's this natural, you know, we plug in what what we know about each other's music, and then you know, informed by what Ryan's doing, and try to you're supporting Ryan, you know, and and making the sound, and I think that um, happens pretty naturally. Where'd the Sabbath cover come from? He, Mr. Ryan yeah, Adams himself, yeah, he, he loves. Yeah. Does he spring that on you, or do you? Yeah. On stage, he sprung on you. He's, we had done it before, but there he's sprung stuff on us on stage. And give us an extreme example of something he sprung on you on the spot. Well, he did. He did several of his, you know, improv made up on the spot. He did one at Newport. I think he did one at the Cap, and you know, those are sort of like you. you you play along a little bit, but, um, you know, the set list was, we, he sprung on Newport. We ended with, you know, the wizard yeah. black Sabbath, and <laughs> we, which we just did like we that had day. jammed it for like two seconds backstage <laughs> yeah. and, um, Jeez. and it works and it's great. Well. I mean, well, you the, guys the, are, it's on SoundCloud quick. The key yeah. to, the key to learning, you know, I think to answer your question about, you know, how do you know how to play these songs? The, <clears> the key to learning those things is just to listen to them a million times. So like when we first got the gig, we were all just eager to get the song list, put it into a Spotify playlist. And the vast majority of the learning of the rehearsing is just listening to that thing on repeat. So that by the time you go to play the songs, you know they they match up with your intuition in a very sort of seamless way once you get a handle on the chords and the melodies it's just like you have this sound in your head and so you know we we put our own twist on things and he was awesome i mean he wanted to feature us and you know i remember when we were on colbert and the producer was hounding him to you know we got to cut 20 seconds off this arrangement and there was it was no ifs ands or buts and 
he sort of, you know, said, you know, let's just cut the solo, you know, and he was like, if I'm not going to have these guys take a solo, what's the point of having them here at all? And Good so, man. yeah, he was really cool like that. that for us, for sure. Um, and, you know, that that was th- those moves go a long way towards sort of fostering that kind of mutual respect that I think leads to good art. And so is they there take any the twenty seconds out of Col- uh, uh, out of Colbert, or who, who, where no, they get we, the- we we trimmed like we kept going and trimming the arrangement like a bar here. Okay, I could take this out. He played it a hair like a, a little tiny bit quicker. Jeez. Is that that must have been on you? Uh, Difficult, right, for you guys? I mean, that's not something normal. You don't come into the variety. It's like, all right, guys, uh, just know tonight. Uh, you're but that's have TV. To- that's TV. Yeah. Yeah, that's- well, that's the thing. You know, they had to fit it. And but you know, ultimately, I think we ended up coming in with uh, with like five seconds to spare. Yeah. yeah. Did, it make, did it make you guys nervous though? Like now, you know, you're you're playing and you gotta. They're professionals. <laughs> but getting back to the regular gigs, like Ryan Adams, do you have any? input on the material and does he discuss in advance what you're going to do at all or is it completely him calling it on the fly on the stage he made the set list but like you know he made a song list and he was when we were like going through the songs he was like hey do you guys like this one i mean is this good like he was but i mean you know look ryan when you're doing a thing like that he's 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 the boss you know and it and, and he's gonna sort of tell us yeah dictate what he wants to do and does it get uncomfortable at all when he starts talking on and on and on at Newport and you, and you have like a limited time and he's going on and on and on just being I love the guy but I'm just wondering what it's like to be on a musician on the stage you know it's, someone like that <laughs> it's it's kind of entertaining and and you know you have the kind of the best seat in the house so. <laughs> well and I saw, I'll say at the Capitol Theater we sort of sat in this ho- in this sort of horseshoe shape around the mic and I was on the end and of course, there was some rowdy guy who was overserved, and he was sitting, you know, over on the end there. And he was, and sort of my back was to him. And you know, he sort of made some noise between one song, and then he piped up again, and he was sort of complaining out loud. And the capital was silent, and I just thought to myself, "You don't want to go there, buddy." And sure enough, my man Ryan Adams ah, took oh him out. This is this is Rob's favorite thing, by the way, an artist that will actually tell the crowd to yes. shut the fuck up. Yes, I mean, and so with your audience, and I want to, I don't want to go too far off here because I like where we're going. But with with your audience, you have a listening audience. I mean, for the most part, well, you guys jam and etc. But you have a the, your audience has the ability to shut up and and listen. Um, God bless you, String Dusters fans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we do have a pretty awesome dynamic audience, and we. You know, in the in the sort of continuum from traditional bluegrass all the way out to the the most sort of progressive strains, you know, we're we're somewhere in the middle as far as the environment of the show goes. In terms of you know, there are definitely down dynamic times where it it makes sense for the crowd to listen, and then you know, those quieter times are what make the bigger times seem much bigger. Exactly. You know? yeah. And you just said it all right there. So, and you gotta, you gotta foster that yourself, you know, and, and that, that involves the more people you have at the show who know the music, that's much easier to create. True. So when you're True. coming up through the ranks and playing a lot of shows in front of a lot of new fans and playing a lot of songs that they don't know, and they don't necessarily know what they're seeing, they're less inclined to be sort of hanging on every note, hanging on every word. Would you but ever approach that and say, you know what, we're going to go into this section. We got to, you know, you have some success. You, you a lot of fans that haven't seen us. Maybe we drop a cover or something just to kind of get them here. And oh, once yeah. they're here, then we can kind of go. Absolutely. Play them something they know so they can tell how good you are. Well, you know, that and just like, so they can break that shell. I mean, I've seen the Wood Brothers uh, do something where they come out with a pin. And, and Chris says, you know, he drops a pin. He goes, all right. 
we're not playing. They're like, huh? The audience is like, what are you talking about? He goes, if you can't hear that drop, I'm not playing. Yeah. <laughs> we well, also do situational <laughs> covers, too, like for what it's worth on election day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, that's a big thing for us is a daily or just kind of what's going on, some sort of relevant cover that we might only do one time or sometimes, like for what it's worth, I think we did a few times because we liked it. and We did hear him practicing the Juggalo song before. <laughs> Just a note, folks. Today is the day that that's happening, so that's why it's coming up in this interview. It's such a night, and they love each other too. Yeah, I was just well, you know, I, I, that's actually no, those were just more kind of warm up. Just sometimes, like during the day, I'll just kind of wanna. I have like songs that are like cover songs that are stuck in my head, and I'll just sit and and kind of sing them. You said warm up, but is it is that is that your form of practice? Uh, yeah, I would say more. Yeah, from just sort of just singing and moving my hands in the afternoon I think I like to do sometimes sometimes like what Chris is going to do today I often when we're on tour I'll go up early and just kind of get in the ears and sit there and just you know you 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 when you're at home or you're sitting acoustic in a green room or something and playing an acoustic instrument and singing it's a very different approach sometimes than when you then put in in-ear monitors and everything's plugged in. <laughs> yeah, right. And you know, you it's and so you know, the goal is for it to not be that different, but it just is, you know, sonically. So sometimes I like to go up and just sort of get a, a, you know, um, calibrate almost and right. I think it's like a really, you know, good thing to do. So I try to get up to sound check usually early for that. And and going back to Newport have you guys ever interacted with Deer Tick at all? Um, not really. Maybe back in the Nashville days when mm-hmm. they, you know, I when you were partying. Then I remember seeing them. <laughs> they were going crazy on stage the one time I saw them, but not really. I just feel like there's a. I mean, it's it's such a cross genre in a lot of ways, but on the songwriting, there's there's I, I could see you guys getting into a good session there. Just cool. to throw that out there. Well, we're going to lose Chris soon, so we got to talk about this Bluegrass Manifesto. Is that an elephant in the room? A big-time <laughs> elephant in the room. <laughs> First of all, were there any reservations about doing that? Because you're definitely making a pronouncement. Even though you're saying something that needs to be said, which essentially is that Bluegrass has to open itself up to other styles of music in order to grow. Every uh, very successful Bluegrass act has to some extent opened themselves to other musics and yet here's this genre that started as a melting pot of genres yet be- ha- has an element of people who have this identity of what it should be and are very inflexible. It was much worse years ago than it is now actually. Yeah, I didn't... It's funny, when I wrote that you know, I, I had had a blog but I didn't... It, you know, it wasn't anything that anyone went to go really check out i was just sort of you know musing on the experience that we had had as a band because there was a profound moment for us where we sort of figured out what we wanted to do and you know that was to play in in standing clubs and you know with that decision came a lot of judgment from the music scene that we had been a part of which was more sort of the bluegrass world after we won those IBMA awards in 2007 you know we were making real money right away on sort of more of a performing arts center circuit and then we played some shows opening for railroad earth did this 180 and we're definitely took a pay cut at the get-go but had much higher ceiling to look forward to in the long run and but most importantly you know this wasn't some like big business decision this was our just 
realization that our music came to life in that environment and would help us connect with people who you know would be a part of that band audience collaboration that you know we had witnessed at grateful dead shows and fish shows etc growing up and our music is no different than theirs in the way that you know it ebbs and flows with the audience and can involve that participation that takes the show to the next level so you know once we realized that it was more sort of a reflection on how that was received by the world and how it was just like from an artist perspective you have these moments and this was one of them where it was just like why does anyone feel like they have the right to tell me what I should ever do I'm that's me that's my job and for fans you know how do they interface with that artist well what we want is just people who support us for what we do not to compare this thing to that other thing that we've done or this other thing that there and of course there's always going to be some version of that but just like everything in the world it's all about your perspective it's all about your attitude and viewed in a certain way certain people see that as a very positive thing and then there are other people who don't and the bluegrass world you know is a very unique musical world where you have all these fans who are also players and this is sort of my you know one of one of my sort of overriding thoughts about that whole thing is that that's why they are more opinionated than normal casual music fans because in the bluegrass world half your audience plays banjo or mandolin and right. so having spent all that time work that does give you an increased ownership over the music and maybe some would say you know more more opinions but um for us it was just a reflection on that realization and you know i think one of those sort of moments where you're kind of just saying what's on everybody's mind and other people had had that thought and hadn't necessarily articulated it you know quite quite as strongly as i did there but um you know that was all it was was just like this is the experience that we just had you know and and if if anything good comes from it for me it would be for other artists to just realize that that road is out there and that they should be seeking those fans who embrace them no matter what they do because that is that is out there i'd love some of your quotes from that though it's a couple zingers in there right (laughs) <laughs> on the we, on the on the manifesto, while you're looking that up on the manifesto side, I always say the reason why I don't eat acid is because I don't have time to write a manifesto. And here you wrote one, so <laughs> we need to agree to disagree on the question: What is bluegrass? So key that got a round of applause. This is a bigger one, though. Um, oh, I wish I had it. about about how it's not very inviting when you're in a musical world and you're constantly judging the newcomers and that's what bluegrass was doing and jazz kind of does it too or used to used to well and that's a great comparison because if you look at jazz and blues and classical they face similar but slightly different iterations of the same problem where the art form and the fans and the artists together and all the business entities that surround it have not embraced evolution and really popular success it's more like it's more like the fans want to keep this thing adhering to this sort of classic standard that they had set, 
But the artists, meanwhile, all that they want to do is find a bigger audience so that they can afford themselves the opportunity sure. and make a lifetime worth of music. Right. So why can't we all just get on this same page and be real about what we're trying to do? Wouldn't that be because of age? I mean, age, age, entitlement comes with age. Age doesn't make you entitled in a lot of ways, and and, and it's a there's a hard thing for people to break. But right, but maybe with music, age should make you more open minded, and a lot of people go the other way. Well, you would think so. I think with I think bluegrass, it really again comes back to this really unique unique sort of participatory nature of the music and it's very makes it very different than other genres and the fans play the music and they spend time learning the instruments and when you do that you do have a sort of an increased level of ownership for better or worse over the music you don't really go around to like uh you know bonnaroo and see a bunch of people around a a fire and uh playing like electric bass yeah <laughs> and and a lot of that stuff gets misconstrued but really you know I, as a sort of follow-up i guess to the manifesto you know i wrote this big article for no depression in their last print issue that came out in the in the in the in the bluegrass article and it was you know the lead-off article sort of the current state of affairs with with bluegrass and it's an excellent article i read it we'll tweet you. it out when we release this um and you know again i got like hairy feedback from people who were sort of misconstruing things trying as if like i'm saying to people hey this is what we did you need to do it this way and right. that's not at not all what you're saying that's all. not what i'm saying at all really i think all right frank really i think my main thing is you know just to like clarify is that you know all of these efforts should be and whether that's the ibma or the again the business entities that surround music they should all be focused on supporting and and helping Cre- artists, creating opportunities, creating it's opportunities for artists, not minimizing them. Not IBS. And if you ask any bluegrass artist, you know, if you ask even the, the more traditional ones, and a lot of these people I was lucky to get in touch with via um, the keynote address that I gave at IBMA after writing the manifesto, I just like called them all to see what they thought about all uh. this. And it was fascinating. You, That's you, a book in itself right there. I'd love to see You that. never find an artist, no matter how traditional they are, who embraces that idea of judgment. They want their fans to have that. They want to be able to go down their road and discover their thing and figure that out. And they want more fans. And, and, and that you know stigma of judgment does sort of hang over that world again for those reasons that we discussed like how everyone plays the music and is just so into it and you know in a, in in a casual fan you cast they tell you their five favorite bands a bluegrass fan they can tell you their five favorite banjo players you know it's like this next level of knowledge about the music but all those traditional guys they want the same thing that we want they want to reach more people and afford themselves the opportunity to make a lifetime in music. That's that's all we want. So if those efforts aren't directed, at, and it's a different, I'm not saying that you know Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver needs to come play the Variety Playhouse. I'm just saying that fans need to let the artists do the talking and figure out how to support that. And if if you can do that, that's that's how you really support an artist. And Doyle Lawson's a good example, though, of what you're saying. He's a guy that I've seen a couple times. He's reduced me to tears. He gets me thinking about God. He's just amazing and very pure. And very, very few people outside of the bluegrass world know Doyle mm-hmm. Lawson. Sorry, who's he? Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Two. And that and that could change. That was that was another sort of overriding thing was there are a lot of artists not getting the recognition that they deserve. And, exactly. You know. Well, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about you all is that you guys are this 
wave that's move that's really bring bring this all together and mixing it up. You're a blender. Well, two, two, we have, you know, have to go. I want two more for you, and then we're going to focus on Andy. Um, first of all, what was what's like an extreme negative that you re- received? Extreme negative response from either the article or the speech. The um, speech has been nine years since the speech, by the way. Wow, time flies. Or the um, keynote speech. Yeah, you know the the <clears throat> article. Um, well. The, the, the big argument that you get is, you know, we're watering down bluegrass. And it's like, who cares? Like, what good does it do to anyone to have someone else's opinion of what is or is not the music? It's does just, the grass need water, though? <laughs> purely semantic, yes. The bluegrass does. Bluegrass needs, needs water in the form of, you know, good support from the fans. And that's, you know, kind of what I'm saying. But people... You, you get this argument that, you know, and oh, that's not bluegrass. And it's like when and, you know, there was this one radio DJ who will go unnamed who just like would go off on everything that I said, you know, and I went, I went on some Internet forum and I saw him <laughs> just like there. trolling me. And I made a I made this like fake profile for myself. <laughs> and I went in, I went on there and I, you know, said. Pandolfi guy, he's not so bad. Like, he's, is what he's saying really that crazy? He's very attractive as well. <laughs> yeah, he's exactly. a great looking guy. And they hammered me on there, wow. you know, and they, Bubble. and they, and they just, yeah, exactly. And it's like, but that's not bluegrass. And it's like, if you're a fan out there and you're telling someone that, hey, my band is bluegrass, but all this stuff, and I want to keep it in this authentic, you're not helping them out. You know, connecting them to the bigger acoustic world, which is going through this amazing renaissance a la Mumford and Sons and Avery. Mm-hmm. Why not, in, you know, encourage that connection for what? For fear of watering down bluegrass? Well, what? No. It's it, going to keep hey, the, it's going to keep it going, really, by exposing it uh, to the young people, and then they become the bluegrass players of the future. There's hope. I mean, listen, I live here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I've seen widespread panic fans now fans of fish. Also, I mean, I'm telling you, there's a light. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the final question for you before we focus. Um, my first experience with the, with the rigidity of a wing of the bluegrass community was in the mid '90s at Merle Fest, and it was in reaction to the Flectones. And I, there was a really strong reaction with Bela, and I guess that extends to the late 80s when he first formed it. Have you discussed this at all with Bela, and has he given you uh, any insight or um, feedback? Good question. Right? Um, I haven't talked with him so specifically about the, the sort of debate about all that, but interestingly, the Flectones is what got me in. So here's a great example. Flectones Perfect. is what got me into banjo. When I got my first banjo, I didn't know what bluegrass was. Banjo got me into bluegrass and now i'm in the infamous string dusters and we're a part of you know where bluegrass is going whether you like it or not unnamed radio dj <laughs> name them um, name um so i'm not gonna name them i'll find it we'll find but, it yeah. um, <laughs> i'll tell you after he leaves okay, cool. <laughs> but I, I i i look at that and i think to myself so here's bela and he's taken the banjo from bluegrass out of context and put you know his genius pure creativity to it and i would not play banjo i would not be sitting here today would not be in the infamous string dusters if it wasn't for that music perfect example of inspiration carrying through and connecting to people in a really authentic way and then ultimately bringing them back to where the roots of those things came from which if you're serious about something you will always do and Flatten Scruggs is always going to be there for people to listen to, whether or not cover bands reiterate that music to your satisfaction or not. It's like we have that thing. 
it's not going anywhere you know and and you know the the flectones they're just like to me the ultimate fusion band you know okay. they're they're the most perfect example of a success in terms of coalescing all these different influences into something new and honoring the roots in a way because again i'm sort of the perfect example it took me all the way back and i am as into bluegrass as anyone will ever be and it's because of bela fleck and the flecton so what more evidence do you really need you do you know? think the choice from having infamous in the band name was a subconscious foreshadowing at all of what you were going to do that you were going to put out this amazing bluegrass record and then do a 180 it wasn't but i like that but it was more of a legal situation where <laughs> a string dusters already existed. But when we had to figure out what kind of string dusters we were, ah, gotcha. we're the infamous kind. So gotcha. On the Bela Fleck note, future man, still future man. I he's mean, not past man. He's future he's man. He's kind of current man now. Is it? Is it? <laughs> we'll let so, you go do your thing. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, for thank you. Really you. We're going to dive in. String dusters fans, don't go away. We're going to dig into Andy now. Lost her baubles to my trade And many a soldier drew his lifeblood on my head The bastards hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive I was a sailor Born upon the tide With sea I built Andy Falco, who came up through the New York scene in the 90s, playing yeah. funk and jazz and all that kind of stuff. Were you playing Wetlands at all? You know, a few times, and then they, they closed, you know. They closed the door right in your face. Yeah. But, uh, Long yeah, I, 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 played it, I played the Wetlands a few times on that scene, and, it, you know, that was a time in New York where there was just... New York has changed a lot, and I think that back then... You know, you can go up to, you know, like Manny's Car Wash, which was a blues joint, which we played a lot. And But, you know... Who's a, we? What was your unit? It was uh, called the Water Street Blues Band or Water Street. And, um, you know, we were doing just kind of, you know, our sort of version of R&B, bluesy, funk kind of party music. Um, jammy, sort of, you know. But we... Uh, you know, back then, yeah, there were just so many venues that in New York, and you you would go to places just to if you wanted to go see some ripping blues, you might go up to Manny's Car Wash or something. Wanted some they, jazz, you go to Smalls. Yeah, right. Or you know, but now it's so weird. You know, man, there's all these places that they just um, have. They don't curate like a scene like that so much. They they might have live music, but they'll have you know everybody doing an hour set and have six disparate bands just coming in and scheduled to come play and what, that's uh, uh, the knitting factory style right kind of yeah, yeah like kinda. you know and it just 
it takes away from that. You know, like I mean, what kind of world do we live in? You're where coming fucking to New York. CBGBs is closed. You know, yeah, yeah. like brutal. It's like you know, but that's what I mean. Bottom is like line. right, exactly. Like you knew there was a there was a there was a thing. There was a vibe there. There was a curated, uh, you know, scene, and you know, everyone can find what their scene was and go frequent that place. And Wetlands is certainly no exception. I would say, you know, today, you know, perhaps like uh, I would say, you know, Brooklyn Bowl, you yeah. know, well, what, what Shapiro, Shapiro exactly, you know, and he knows, you know, and so. You know, Brooklyn Bowl has like a curated scene, I would say, you know, yeah. which I think is become something of a, you know, a rare occurrence, I feel we're, like. We're here in Atlanta having uh, an explosion of venues. I mean, there, uh, here Variety has been remodeled. Uh, it looks great. Um, but uh, there's more and more venues opening up here with the City Winery. And, and now there's like another five that are yeah, going to be opening up pretty soon. Awesome. So around 2004, well, do, do you get into acoustic music and decide to move to Nashville? Or well, no, is like, it the other way around? It's kind of like, you know, I was like learning, you know, going real early. I was like learning and jamming. You know, my older brother is like jamming and playing guitar and and then, you know, he's, like, signing me out of school in, like, the <laughs> mid-'80s to go to Grateful Dead shows. and um, I know that. I know that. Trey. Yeah. I might have bumped him. And, you know, it was, like, you know, in those times, probably where I remember listening to some, you know, college station or something in New York. And and um, I don't know who it was, but it was, like, maybe Reverend Gary Davis or something, and he's doing Samson and Delilah, you know. And I'm thinking as a kid, wow, you know, uh so cool that this old blues guy is doing a Grateful Dead song. <laughs> and, you're just a little light. And, and it was like one of those things like, you know, where I said that kind of to myself and thought, wait a minute. Oh, wait. And, you know, it's kind of like what we were talking about before, you know, how, you know, yeah, like going, going into the Grateful Dead catalog and then realizing, you know, that there was like a lot of these cover songs that they were doing and I started took a step backwards from there. And actually, kind of the progression for me was like really getting into the Grateful Dead and then getting into the Allman Brothers band, um, which was to me like the Grateful Dead on steroids in a lot of ways, you know, jamming, ripping, but like in a very Grateful Dead were more mellow and chill. And, you know, almonds were just ballsy as fuck. And like, you know, getting into all of that music. And also, they were taking these blue, old blues songs and, diving a step further back and getting into blues and I got in really into Michael Bloomfield and you know just you know David Bromberg and all these people that I you know through Bromberg blues comes up. yeah he's every, played with him but we'll get to that. yeah but like you know David Bromberg you know is I got turned on him via the blues route cuz I got into you know like I said you know the Grateful Dead got me into blues and you know even a little bit of country and and as did the Almonds and uh, uh, you know BB King and all this stuff and like my uh, a person who lived in my hallway across the hall when I was up in college you know was like oh you like BB King have you ever heard David Bromberg I'm like no and so it was like via the blues thing but he was playing mandolins and fiddles and all this other stuff too and I started started getting exposed to that music also from the Grateful Dead and then eventually it led to sort of bluegrass again through my older brother who was always sort of looking for other music and and searching around but you know 
we started playing bluegrass sort of that way. But I mean, there were early recordings where I'm playing mandolins and dobros and stuff. And that was most certainly the influence of David Bromberg and David Grisman, you know. Yeah, so Gray Fox Bluegrass Festival used to be called, before that it was called Winterhawk. And before that it was called the Berkshire Mountain Bluegrass Festival. And so um, Buddy was up there in the 70s and he was watching music and it started to rain and... And then all of a sudden they said, okay, everyone, there's some lightning coming in. And the next thing he knows, he like wakes up and he's in a hospital. He got struck by lightning. Mm. And it was a big deal for the festival, you know. It's like, wow, you know, if you're at, imagine being at a festival and some somebody gets struck by lightning. You know, everyone was like, wow. My insurance agent you know, about that like, yeah. yesterday, actually. <laughs> right. That just happened, too. Well, yeah, it does happen. And so, um, but Monroe, like, reached out and found, you know, found out who it was. He had heard about it, and he reached out, and they became friends, and he became, you know, Buddy's mentor and, and, and mandolin. And, like, um, so Buddy has a really unique experience with, you know, learning how he learned mandolin. And, and so I, my first gig playing bluegrass music, you know, we met Buddy because we were doing some bluegrass kind of stuff and I was playing some mandolin, you know, real shittily. And um, this D- radio DJ, local DJ up there that used to come see his place said, hey, um, you should meet Buddy Miriam, you know. he's a, He lives here on the island and whatever, man, you know. And he like brought him to the gig the next time we played and we did it every other Sunday. And, he uh, introduced it and I said, oh, come sit in and he played and it was awesome. And so we're like, hey, you want to do this gig with us every other Sunday? And so that's kind of, we started playing music with him that way. And then when the, when the electric band like wasn't really happening and I was like going to see Buddy a lot with his bluegrass band and sitting in with him and stuff, then he asked me if I would join his band. So I started playing bluegrass in Buddy's band for a few years and really, you know, got getting to learn how to do it. I mean, I didn't, when he asked me, well, you know, you want to join my band? I was like, I don't know how to fucking play bluegrass guitar, really, you know? And he's like, no, 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 you know? So it was kind of like a learn on the spot. You know, a lot of the fiddle tunes and stuff that I was learning, it was kind of like, you know, on stage, like this one's in G, you know? And it would come around to my turn to pick and I'd have to try to cop the melody or something. But like, you know... So after a few years of that, and we would go down to IBMA in, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and ah. you know, got to like, you know, meet people and making friends in the bluegrass world, and okay. you know, and that's also you know, in those years is when I'm you know meeting uh, Pandolfi through mutual friends because we're from all from me Pandolfi and Andy Hall are from the Northeast, you know, so I met them sort of independently of each other and would hang and see them at different events and pick and then, you know. But, yeah, then I just, you know, needed kind of a change. And I felt like, you know, moving to Nashville might be in something that would be a good idea. You know, I felt like in New York, I felt uh, musically, I was starting to feel career-wise and everything sort of stagnant, you know, and being in New York. And I, I just needed a change. And I was really diving deep into bluegrass music and figured maybe go to where there was stuff going on. And, you know, so, you know, with the... Advice of I, my friend Cody Kilby, who plays guitar with the Traveling McCurries, and at that time, you know, he plays he played with Ricky Skaggs for many years. He's a he produced my solo record, and he's a really good friend. And you know, I asked him, you know, hey man, like if I moved, do you think like I could do anything? You know, like you think 
Like, tell me, I mean, if you think no. And he was like, no, man, I think you should. There's a lot going on down here, you know, so. How'd you get the ball rolling initially when you first got to Nashville? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, through like Cody, who had some gigs thrown his way that he couldn't do. And so he recommended me for things. And, you know, that helped a lot. And um, also um, through uh, Ronnie McCurry, you know. Like back in the years when we were going down to IBMA, and you know, we got to know the McCurries. You know, me and my brother and stuff, and you know, we got to meet those guys. I mean, back then it was like you know, late night in the hallways, just hanging out, you know, and uh, got to know those guys. And we would, and Ronnie called me, and you know, he he said, "Hey, you know, there's this band called the Green Cards that's looking for a guitar player, and so I recommended you." And I, so he connected me with these this band, the Green Cards, who. We're a really cool band. Got and, to open uh, for Dylan. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, they're no longer allowed in the country. Oh boy. <laughs> no, no, they, they, they had, they're all now. They're, I think they're, they're citizens now. But really good harmonies. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Really kind and of lilting so, melodies. Yeah. And stuff. I played, yeah. Exactly. I played with them a bunch, and I and I had some other gigs that I was. So people were like looking out, you know, and and I started playing then also, and you know, in my first gig in Nashville, as far as like a job that I took was touring with. Uh, the Alicia Nugent band and she's a singer you know bluegrass singer that was on Rounder that you know so I started playing in her band and then uh, and then I you know did that for a few years and then uh, but I knew that you know I knew all the dusters because they were all friends of mine from before and we moved to Nashville but had you heard them as a band yet yeah well no I knew them yeah they were they had they had started like you know Pandolfi and and Critter, you know, Chris Eldridge and Andy Hall, they had like, you know, they were playing some gigs, you know, they, they lived in, you know, in the Northeast and whatever. And like, and then they moved to like Nashville to start a band. And then right around the same time up. you did, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I was like a little bit after, but they were doing that thing. And like, and then they met, you know, Travis and Jeremy and Jesse, who was in the band. time Anyway, so that was like what was happening. And they had this band and then I moved down there and they were doing early string dusters stuff and um and then when chris left they uh i remember uh, you know back then we smoked cigarettes you know and um i remember at uh a festival i was playing with believe the green cards at wintergrass up in uh in in washington state you actually had the wintergrass hat on today. yeah yeah and um i was uh like up there and uh you know i knew all those guys and jeremy was like uh we went out to smoke a cigarette he goes hey man let me ask you like if uh you know, because it wasn't really public knowledge that Chris was going to be leaving the band. And so he said, would you uh, consider, you know, ever like joining our band? I was like, fuck, yeah, of course I would. That'd be great, you know. And so, you know, after, you know, getting together a few times and they, of course, they needed to 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 try some other guitar players and go through the whole thing. But then, yeah, they asked me to join the band. And of course, I was very happy to do that. And uh, Eldridge's departure was amicable. Was that all good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, when, yeah. you were, when you were in Nashville, you, were you doing any session work? Yeah, a little bit, you know, and, you know, playing in Alicia's band. We, that was more like on the traditional bluegrass scene. And, uh, you know, in fact, you know, Andy Hall used to play some of those shows with us back then, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were all, you know, Andy Hall was, was uh, playing in Dolly Parton's band. And Pandolfi was playing in this, like, Russian country band. I'm trying to remember what they so were. Russian like, country band? So, like, a very fast-paced country yeah, band? Yeah, yeah, right, with a lot of vodka. And... Um, <laughs> You know, everybody. You know, everybody was doing. I should say, everybody in the band was doing all these things. But they were, you know, 
But there was a point where the string dusters decided they were going to be full-time string dusters. And then not long after that, not long after the first record was released, you know, it was, um, you know, Chris was leaving. And so I really joined the band. It was September. My first shows were September. It's about 10 years ago. September uh, 2007. Right around the time of the manifesto. No, the manifesto was a few years after that. The, oh, really? I thought yeah. he, was, he gave the speech in 08. And... No, no, no. No, it was way after that. Oh, okay. All right. But, um, Rob. Whoops. Rob, how dare you? you, you damn it. You're, fa- you're fake news. <laughs> yes, you're going to get me fired, man. <laughs> you're listening to fake yeah, news with Rob Turner. <laughs> Uh, anyway, but you know, yeah, we. Um, but they're a democracy. Huh? I joined what? the band, and it was like in 2007, October at IBMA is when the first record won all those awards at IBMA. But I had just joined the band. I mean, I joined. So you the band. get all the credit, right? Yeah, it was like you know, uh, shit. Man. I was like, uh, hey, Ma, look I what feel I did. Weird about this, like, you know. But it was cool because they actually. I had said, you know, you should give these. Um, these awards to Chris Eldridge because he played on the record. It was album of the year, song of the year, and uh, maybe emerging, like artist. emerging artist or yeah. something. And so I was like, you know, like, like this, these belong to Chris Eldridge, you know. But what they did, they were like, no, no, what we're going to do is we're going to do, we'll give both you guys the awards. Aww. Oh, that's nice. So, a bunch of mentions. But was it easy to ease your way into that? I mean, it's a democratic thing, but it's the, all the other guys know each other so well, and you're coming in, you're coming in green. Yeah, I mean, it was it was easy, and part of that is because you know I had known all of them. We were all friends. I mean, back then in Nashville, we were all hanging out and sure, but they have a the unit. Time. They as a yeah, unit, yeah, as a unit, yeah. No, they were. It was really seamless, honestly. You know, it was like felt like you know. I mean, it was a lot. Of, I have to, you know when you do a come into a thing like that. I mean, I was hanging with Chris, you know, and he, he would kind of show me voicings that he was doing on stuff and, you know, and just kind of like, yeah, this is what I played on this. And, you know, uh, so it was, I was well prepared. You and know, were you writing right in. away? Um, no, not really. At first, I kind of just, I really eased into that sort of portion of it. It was more about um, just kind of trying to musically mesh. And, you know, we were a very different band then, too. I mean, we were playing on microphones and we were doing traditional kind of venues and festivals and you weren't playing flamenco style like you do on the yeah no not new much record. flamenco <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah man so but you know the guys i think the thing about going into a situation like that in a band you know it's about personalities and it's and it, and when you're well, you're the New Yorker, so you're the... Well, there's three New Yorkers. Three. Don't let those guys yeah. fool you. There's three fucking New Yorkers yeah. in the band, and it's, you know, me and Pandavi and, and Andy Hall are all New Yorkers. Okay. But um, but they, they live in Denver, you know, and, so uh, you know... So they're chill. They, mel- they mellow... That chance to mellow out. Yeah, but I don't... <laughs> I've been I, I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. mellow out. I'm getting... I'd I've say go back. fuck yourself, but I don't know. You yeah, know. right. There's got to... Really, you know, they, they're, they're losing their... They're, they're too polite when they're telling people to go fuck themselves. Oh, yeah. thank you, thank you. So, um, uh, Rob, Rob, you got time for one more? All right. Well, no, 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 no. I want you to think about let's it. Let's jump to Lockin, working with Phil Ash and Paige McConnell. Yeah. How much rehearsal did you get? Who who chose the material? How did that all go down? Well, you know, um, so the we were asked to do it, and we of course were thrilled because we it was obviously going to be so much fun for us and such an honor. So, um, a songless came in. I mean, I I suppose I suggest I made a list of 
Grateful Dead songs that when Samson we were... Samson and Goliath. No, right. <laughs> well, you know, that wasn't on the list, but I was making a list of songs that I thought would lend themselves well to the string dusters playing, you know, and with the, uh, you know, a lot of the acoustic instruments, although I played mostly electric guitar on it, but... Um, Rosalie McFall, for example. Yeah, yeah, I did, you know, but like the other twos, like it was like more... I chose... I made a long list of songs that I thought would be good to suggest because they had like a lot of melodies and I felt with all of the, you know, our instruments playing melodies, things like Terrapin, things like, you know, that have these licks and stuff that like... Um, I thought we're going to work well. Anyways, but Phil, you know, went through the list, I guess, and he chose what he what he wanted to choose. And there were a bunch of the songs that I suggested. And um, but you know, Phil made the list, and we were we got that together that day to rehearse. But um, they got us all in the room, and and they let us know that Phil, you know, something wrong with his plane, so he was running late. Um, something, something got held up. Plane, plane. Pl- the plane. plane. He was flying in that day. Oh yeah, I something said happened. Playing. I got confused. No, no, there was something, something wrong with his plane. No, no something <laughs> he couldn't get in, and so there was a travel problem, and <clears throat> so they were like, "Look, we got you guys all here, but like Phil isn't going to make it for the rehearsal. He'll be here for the show, but not for the rehearsal." So, like Dylan did to the dead in '87. <laughs> so just so, go ahead and play this CD. Uh, play over it. Well, you guys we just kind of, and I think Russo kind of took, could you know, oh, sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah. he sort of was like, all right, well, let's run through all these tunes. We had the set list, and we started. So we ran through everything, and even Derek and Susan were there because they sat in on some mm-hmm. tunes and, and all of us. And it was great. You know, we never, I never met a Paige or, um, you know, or Fish or, um, you know. I, I met Joe, but, like, I, I didn't, you know. So we got together, and we just, you know, met each other and started running through these tunes, and, and it was, and then Phil showed up. I mean, the set ran. We had to start the set late. That's how tight he came in. Yeah. But it was so, it was so inspiring to see Phil after a hard travel day coming all the way across the country. And man, like when they were like, "Okay, Phil's here." We we got on that stage, and and then they he just like arrived, and they put the bass right on him, and there he was. And he said, hey, you know. Yeah, hey, that's quick hello, and then, <laughs> hey, okay, you guys ready? You know, and there he was, his smile, and then the stage turns, and there's like, you know, however uh, many fifteen thousand people out there, and and we and I got to start the, you know, the the we open with Scarlet, you know, and so I start. He's like, go ahead, you know, start playing it, and just hearing his bass, and he's just smiling, and it was just a such a cool moment, you know, just to uh, see that, and so inspiring to see him having all of that day, hard day, but he just got out there, threw his bass on didn't think twice about it and he ripped and it was really great you gotta reach out to Mike Gordon the next time you play Burlington I'll bet if he's in town he would come out and play with you your music's he, right he's up been his out. yeah he's been out to see us up there um, has he sat in uh, he's sat in with he's, he has sat in with the Dusters and we and we played with Mike and Phil at out west one time we did a thing on, out, on the outdoor stage there at Phil's place oh cool and it was yeah, cool yeah, yeah. yeah we gotta make so. a trip out there Rob yeah and they just played with Phil again recently well yep is that part of the deal that the other musicians come along with him if, they, if you're at the crossroads? He, um, you know, he 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 comes when he wants to, you know. And we, of course, you know, he doesn't he doesn't go all the time. But That's what um, his wife says, you know, we we, <laughs> but we, um, you know, it's really it's really it's really an honor. And he's, you know, it's always it's always so awesome when he comes around. He's such a great influence and a great musician and it's we feel feel real lucky to get those opportunities so we feel really lucky to have the opportunity to sit down with you here today Absolutely. so thank you very thanks much thanks for having us we really appreciate it guys thanks so much you guys are on to a really great thing it's really good to see you here thank you thank you
So, Rob, since you've been giving so many reviews online, why don't you review the interview that we just did? Um, I thought it was pretty good. I wish, as I had said in the intro, I wish I ha- was armed with a little better knowledge of exactly who was the source of each song. Because, in retrospect, there were a couple of songs I would have liked to have gotten into more. But I guess the way with this band is to really start seeing them a lot and really get Because there's like seven songwriters in the band, dude. It's ridiculous. The basis, th- that song, Gravity, is the bassist's. Um, the freaking Dobro player has a ton of great songs. I mean, they all write really good songs. Right. It's ridiculous. Right. They all, what do they do? They all write really great songs. (laughs) I enjoyed them. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing them, as I said, over at Strings and Soul. But one thing, a couple things I wanted to talk about from the interview that, that got me, um, the writing retreats, that was kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, this, but just what you just talked about, and then the writing retreats. Yeah, Neil Casal is the one who first told me about that. We were watching Jason Isbell at Christmas Jam. Isbell, Isbell, and um, he. We started talking about Amanda Shires, and he said that she does that every year, and that a lot of songwriters really try to make a habit of taking a week out of every year to keep the oils greased or whatever as a songwriter, because you can dry up. Yeah, you can dry up. I wonder at events like Strings and Soul, how much. Uh, I mean, everyone has a good time, but I wonder how much creativity in writing, you know, these guys might pull aside and kindle up. It's be interesting. I don't know. You mean co-write while they're together? Yeah, yeah, just kind of like like you, you say. Find out. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'll bring my gear. By the way, there may be a chance we'll just pull someone aside and have a conversation. You know, I've got this new little gadget here, so we can get rid of the, some of the sound effects that 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 telephony kind of thing, kind of clean it up a little bit. But Rob likes to be in person, so yeah, the writing retreats were interesting. The whole the whole piece about. What you just said, also um, the knowledge base—that really was an interesting thing to me. Well, because how the fans are, yeah, I mean, because you know, it's like there's all this. We're talking about that how critical the bluegrass fan base can be, and then when he said, "Well, think oh. about it—they're all musicians. They're all educated musicians, essentially, to, to varying levels of extent. So, extensive and, level." And and Rob, I really want to know who the fuck was that DJ? You said you were going to do the research. You find out who the DJ is. I poked around. I didn't. I couldn't find the name. Is a Nashville bluegrass DJ. If you know the DJ, email us at insideoutwtns at gmail We're very very curious. And I also want to bring up. He's talking about the DJ who was fighting with Chris about not fighting, but crit, very yeah. critical of Chris about his um, looseness with wanting to spread bluegrass rather than be a stickler about it and keep it in a limited uh, audience. And. The uh, I loved how um, Bela worked. Uh, Bela got worked into the conversation, and how much of an influence, and how how that really like got, it was his deviation from bluegrass and inspired yeah. Chris to get into bluegrass and play banjo in bluegrass. It's kind of says it all, really. It, it really does, and 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 it just goes to really support what his manifesto, what his what's all about. Well, it's obvious. It's just a weird thing with human nature that people 
want to take possession of things that have a lot of meaning to them. But really, in music, you can really it, 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 you can look like an ass when you do that. Yeah. That music should be an open thing, really, and most people who really can take a step back and see it for what it is, rather than for uh, from the perspective of whatever obsession you have with whatever piece of the music world. When you have the ability to step back, some of this shit really can come off really absurd. But his point, though, was really good, too, that no matter what you do, if you're passionate about something, you're always going to go back to the roots. If you Mm -hmm. love something, it doesn't matter, you know, like if if someone thinks he's watering down, you know, bluegrass, well, he understands all of the bluegrass. And and, if your love is real, those roots don't fade away. Yeah. Well, there you go. Look at that. Um, And the final thing I wanted to bring up on that interview was I really enjoyed uh, Rob's take on how they put Infamous in Infamous String Dusters. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) That just kind of hit me in the interview. (laughs) It was good, though. It was good. See, they should use that. Uh, Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Uh, Hey, Rob. Our last three interviews, uh, which were drummers, by the way, Thievery Corporation, uh, Jeff Franco, uh, Dave Franca, Watts, Franca. sorry, oh my God, <laughs> Dave Watts with the Motet, and Adam Deitch, um, all three, great, so we're gonna we're really excited, but maybe the month of uh, February will be like dr- the drummer month or something, but the point is, uh, kudos to you, Rob, each one of them individually said that uh, they were really impressed with the level of research and what you were able to bring to the um, interview, so thank well, you for that. that's very nice, thank you, and, and one interesting thing to point out, Dave Watts of the Motet was also in the band Chakra uh, uh, in the 90s, way back when I was living in Massachusetts and I used to see them and we talk about that. We do. They had some interesting fans. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's another episode. So yeah, we went, Seth impressed me at Dead & Company. Not uh, only was he listening, but he picked up on that John Mayer gave uh, Jeff Clemente uh, an impromptu piano solo in the loser. Well, yeah, when that loser, when I remember that moment, I had to go up to Rob and put, pushed through a couple people. I'm like, and I had to ask you, I'm like, is this, is this like normal for them? Because it sounded to me like they were they were going into like an ex, you know they were exploring and it was a wonderful version I, w- I i went in with very low expectations i mean first i was like really 150 dollars tickets like people are crazy to spend that kind of money in this band but the lights went out and we didn't have to thankfully. <laughs> thankfully yes funny story in that too i'll tell you later um but the lights went out the music started they jumped right into trucking and i was like Oh wow! Like well, actually, they jammed around. They yeah, kind of teased okay. Birdsong a little, which they would end up playing. But they they came they came in like a strong band, like a, a you know not a cover. Like they came in like really really strong. And Mayer impressed me. There was moments what I what I saw Mayer doing was bringing a very Eric Clapton esh kind of space. Uh, I don't want to say space, but bringing the music kind of towards that Eric Clapton sound, um, or or at least bringing like that type of. Uh, guitar playing to it. Yeah, there's a sharp blues uh, feel to a lot of his playing. My biggest area of hope for that band right now is that in the previous tours when I've watched them, the times where Mayor has lost me is when he just kind of takes over and doesn't interact with the other members and just kind of shreds over the top. And that's not really Grateful Dead music to me. And I'll tell you, I've been watching the entire tour, and that's just not happening much anymore. Maybe he's... Uh Listen to himself and listen oh, to other folks. Oh, he does. I've talked to roadies who've watched Weir scold the guy. Oh, yeah? I mean, the guy is so down to earth and so humble and really putting himself at the feet of this music, If there's for, for lack of a better way of saying it. You say feet, and that just makes me think of O'Teal. What's the deal with O'Teal's oh, no, like... I wish he'd wear shoes. But what, what's the thing that he stands on, this like little box back there? I don't know. He's probably doing some sort of... I don't know. He's you know, interesting. Advanced but he... <laughs> 
he's interesting, man. He uh, he sang for our, uh, the Atlanta show, which was nice, and um, he sang "Comes a Time," which is an obscure old Jerry tune. Mm. But he he sound man. He's he sounds so good. He's uh, constantly pushing the music along. I love the way he plays. What, what really a career, cool. though. I mean, what a career. We gotta talk to O'Teal. Come on, come sit with down with us. But his uh, his career. I mean, look, he's played with the Allman Brothers. Played with the Grateful Dead. It's ridiculous, and he is so good. Get me O'Teal, dude. Get me O'Teal. So um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the show, and I I am impressed with the magnitude of sound and and what the performance they put on. It they're a, they're a good band. It's a good band. So again, email us if you want me to write reviews or review your webcast or write a review for your website or if you'd like me to appear on your podcast when I'm traveling in January. Inside out, WTNS at gmail.com or R-S-T-N-E-R on Twitter at R-S-T-N-E-R. And what are we on Twitter at Inside Out WTNS? Yes, Inside Out WTNS. At Timeless Music PC for my other one, which we're about to crank up. Good, Rob. I'm happy to hear to that. FJ. I know as, you are. As you're, as you're doing that, we're about to crank down. Folks, I got news for you. January is going to be a dead month. And I don't mean by dead in terms of uh, Grateful Dead music. I mean, WTNS is going to take the month of January off as Rob travels and I am um, on Jam Cruise and all these other events. Um, we're working on a special 50th episode for you. We are, we definitely are. But we want to give you guys January to go ahead and reflect, relax, and listen to all those episodes you haven't listened to yet. And more so, Rob and I are going to freshen up. And you, we may put something out there here or there just to kind of check in with you all, and um, but not a full episode or anything like that. So we're going we're gonna to take the break. We still have the recorporation in two weeks. After January, um, hopefully the Osiris platform will be happening, and we'll we assume it will be, and... We're going to hit you with two uh, episodes on Anders. Yeah, B- yeah, B2B. Um, we sat down with Anders for over it was over 2 hour interview. <laughs> it was a long interview, so we're going to we're going to space it out for you guys. And Fish comes up, so that'll be a good one to debut on the Osiris podcast. Mm-hmm. We have Jerry Joseph coming up and um, what are some of the other We just mentioned the other 3, the drummers. And the other drummers, yeah. So we're we, as always we have plenty of interviews in the can. We still have a, a few from Hampton 70 we haven't used. We have some industry profile spotlights we haven't used. And we have our uh, WTNS Live series that will be kicking back up probably in March. And we've got some... Um, God, that'll be six months. Way, I know. Way to go. Good job, Seth. Seth handles the live part of the show. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, folks. Oh, <laughs> Seth got all upset. Well, you know, it's just it's a little harder than you think there, Rob. But, you know, listen, just... Just put some bleachers out in the sun, having right. on Highway 61. Right. And, uh, oh, speaking of Highway 61, you know, that makes me think of festivals. And festival season is you are a producer or promoter or an event manager. Think about your needs for your volunteers. Festival, that's F-E-S-T-I-V-O-L dot com. That's the software? It is the software. We just did um, a bunch of upgrades to it and just released a new version. Uh, so if interested, check out online. So even if, even if a festival is doing their own volunteer work in-house, mm-hmm. this they is the- can use the software to manage their it's more than a software rob it's uh, it's, it's your management it's, company it's as well the management program so you're using it's not the management company we're not going to manage the volunteers for your event but we're going to give you the tools to be able to do it with the software and the software is designed by us so you're really getting the program and so, it, it, it's a way to monetize your volunteer program as so well for example as, if the needs are shifting on the different days of the festival the software can help your Move your uh, staff and your what you have, your resources, 
to meet the shifting needs. It gives Is that you, correct? It's, yeah, I mean, that's one angle, but there's 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 lots of different angles. It's it's a if you're managing stuff on a spreadsheet, you're missing the boat. This is a way to really communicate with your workers. It's a way to um, monetize your program, and it has all the bells and whistles to really, when you're on site, to make sure you get the most out of your needs. And also, as a work exchange team, workexchangeteam.com. Yeah, absolutely. Thank so you. So anybody that, who's Mark. worked on Work Exchange Team, you know, send us an email. Let us know. Let us know what a good experience you had. Inside out WTNS at gmail.com. Or if you liked one of our live events, please send us a, a testimonial that'll help us get other ones. Because I really upset South here. Cause no, it, no. Uh, on that note, though, been, that's, uh, half, that's we've half had, a year. We've had a couple people of interest uh, interested in sponsoring the uh, live events. So if you're a company and you really want to get in on that, now's the time because we have a big one coming up in March, uh, and we'll be announcing that in the new year. So. We'll talk to you guys before Hanukkah, or probably after Hanukkah and before Christmas. We're going to end with this. Um, once again, Thomas Helland, T-Dog, who's putting on this uh, Hootenanny December 20th. He was also responsible, I'm sure you've heard me talk about it before, for our last two John Hartford performances here in Atlanta, Georgia. There's going to be, John Hartford would have been 80 December 30th this year. Would have been 80 years old. So I believe we're going to have a little subset of uh, you know a couple covers, maybe at the end even, at this show. And that's one of the reasons uh, Infamous String Dust did a wonderful steam-powered airplane, and that's going to kick off our little run of music to end this episode. So Nice, Rob. Good choice there. Why don't you give us a, a don't delay to head us out? Don't delay! Call Polay! Polay Clark, accounting firm for you.
in a 747 just watching the clouds roll by. Can't tell him that sunshine or if it's rain. Traveling, sitting on the deck chair, high for the Kansas City. On that gentleman, more fashion, all that extreme. 